Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cast of Caught, where we talk all things related to the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I'm your host, Rachel, and joining me is the other half of my quartet. La, 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 la. <laughs> the one and only DJ. I'm sounding off there. That's 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 what that was. Really? I thought you were, I, I was waiting for you to like go into like a whole song and dance thing. I thought it was a warm up. <laughs> thought maybe you had come up with like, like a DT rap. That Do you like the Charleston or something like that? Or the Charleston. Yeah, I like it. Hmm. Okay, so we're back, guys. Uh, <laughs> on prime form today, uh, obviously. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's Friday night. I haven't opened a beer yet, but I suspect by the time we roll into chapter six, I will have. <laughs> I know I had some eggnog in the refrigerator that's calling my name, but I, I Ooh, backed eggnog. away. Eggnog. Oh, I like your early start on eggnog. Your dedication to Christmas impresses me. Oh, you cannot let that go. Eggnog season is perfect and pleasant. It is, I know. Mm, mm. All and right. And mold wine. Oh, and then mold wine. See, now I love this time of year because this is stout season and I love, like, I want a beer as dark as sin. Like, that, that is, <laughs> and if it has a pumpkin spice to it, oh, mwah, chef's kiss. So this yeah, is they've just been barrel aging all of them lately. Mm, so, like, mm, it kind of mm, is mm. like, I don't really want bourbon in my beer. Oh, see, I, the more bourbony, the better. Cause I'm a bourbon, <laughs> that's what I drink when I'm not drinking beer is bourbon. So, to me, a bourbon barrel aged stout. You know, mm. that's chocolate and peanut butter right there. That's magic where the magic happens. I feel I like I need to have like a drink theme for every episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, we're definitely going to have a drink theme for our bonus episodes. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get into that later down the road. Okay. So plan for this episode. Let's get back to the present. We're going to kick things off on our super sized show. Vuvuzelas. <laughs> yeah. With an in depth conversation about Wizard and Glass, part two, Susan, chapter five, Welcome to Town, sections six through 10, and chapter six, Shimi. And then we'll close out the show with our usual fun listener feedback from the Facebook group. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. So, DJ, remind our listeners of what our spoiler policy is, please. Like a poor kid tripped in a bar who spills drinks all over his friends and family, <laughs> we will not do that to you. We will not trip you up and get you dirty. We will let you know before the splashdown occurs into the spoiler zone. <laughs> that was a good one. Sometimes you come out of left field and I enjoy those as well, but that one was like, that was a really good on theme for the episode one. <laughs> 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 All right. We don't have any iTunes reviews this week. So if those of you at home are enjoying the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes and we will read it on the show. All right. DJ, where did we last leave off with our friends? If you guys remember, I was poorly prepared for the previous episode, apparently stopping in the midst of a chapter as what? opposed to the end of the chapter. My what? bad. So the gang has just rolled into town and been invited to this shindig and they have finally rolled into said shindig uh this is at the uh, mayor's palace mansion whatever and roland even describes it as being far nicer than you'd expect by uh using sort of a like fun tongue-in-cheek but also nice term the description is something to the range of um what is it it's uh uh if this is if this is humble then i'd like to see what your mansions look like or something like that yeah, I mean, but his internal dialogue is maybe less flattering, but yeah, yeah. Uh, so Roland's like looking around the, the area. Um, first, he gets kind of introduced to uh, the mayor, and then the mayor brings in 
uh, um, Jonas, who is apparently the minister of things and counting. Yes. <laughs> and then, like, he's kind of got this thing going in the back of his head where he's, like, already on the hunt for Susan. Mm-hmm. And he, like, spies her across the room. He's sort of, like, sizing up all of the characters in said room. He shakes Thorin's hand and, like, notices that he's, like, the crackly old man that he expects him to be. He kind of uh, watches Thorin walk away and around and, like, notices that Susan's sort of hanging out with him. He gets introduced to a rancher and uses the term uh, long days and pleasant nights, which, like, sort of outs him as being from a more important part of the affiliation than Gilead. where they're at. Yep. Yeah. And, and then, like, there's just a bunch of little subtle bits where, like, when he finally gets introduced to um, – Wait a minute. Am I getting ahead of myself with it being introduced to Susan? Uh, yes. A no, little I'm bit, not. but that's, I mean, yes and no, but yeah, you're fine. Okay. So then, then Roland and the gang gets introduced to uh, everybody. Uh, Susan rolls up and Roland is like sort of eyeballing her and having an internal panic attack. And like, he realizes so pretty. that her eyes are gray and beautiful. And like, if he'd have seen that while he was out in the dark, it would have been the end of him. <laughs> And he's like, it's kind of like this epic young boy uh, love problem where mm-hmm. he's almost afraid he's going to break character for a second as he's as though he's not supposed to know her. She sort of makes like solid eye contact with him and then skips on. And then Cuthbert kind of comes to the rescue with like a joke about how beautiful she is that he might have to lay his head on the ground and stare up at her for a while to feel better. <laughs> and yeah. like that, like that's the icebreaker that sort of like gets everybody to be a little less like on edge about um well Roland and her anyway on edge. The awkwardness like, of him. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's sort oh of like god, oh my god, away. oh my god. Yeah. And then uh basically like Roland gets introduced to the ranchers, they kind of roll in and like sit down. And this is where Roland sort of has to like declare Let's pause for a second here, because oh. we are getting now we're getting way deeper into all this. And I want to talk about a couple little things that happen oh, in these okay. first couple of sections. Okay. So first of all, we get our first introduction to Reimer. We've heard of him a bunch of times. He was, na- he was mentioned in the very first section, you know, back at Rio of Coos and, and we, he's kind of been sort of this mysterious, powerful figure in town. And we finally get a look at him and like on site, he dude looks like a super villain. Roland describes him as being like very tall. He's, you know, Roland is tall himself and Reimer is five inches taller than Roland. And skin is as pale as candle wax. And he has this like gray hair that's sort of floating around his head. And he has those little glasses on the tip of his nose. And he calls him uh, the old Dr. Death. <laughs> yeah, not a great first impression with Reimer. And he's there with Avery and they do the whole spiel about being so welcoming and so excited to be there that now, because we know that Avery's so full of shit, anytime somebody behaves like this, we understand, with the exception of all of Thorin, that it's almost code for people are up to no good. Right? I'm really bad. I like kind of um brushed right past him and like was like more excited about Roland and his awkwardness. <laughs> I mean that that's important too. But there's one other thing in here where we meet them that I just thought was really great imagery on the part of Stephen King where he when he first meets Reimer and he's sort of being ushered into the party by Reimer and he points out that Reimer's teeth are huge and he says the teeth in his smile were almost disconcertingly huge. Will ye come? He led them past the grinning sheriff and into the reception hall. And you just get this sense. First of all, the big 
too many teeth feeling always feels like oh he's heading into the the basically the wolves den right that the these people are extremely predatory and our our hero though capable is maybe in over his head there's no friends to be found in this party <laughs> well i i didn't he mention that like uh thorin's wife is still like kind of nice yeah she's still kind of floating around trying to lead them in and gets dismissed by Reimer. yeah the other thing that's kind of interesting here is that again Roland signals to Cuthbert to remember everything and so i know so does that are we trying i guess i'm just wondering what does that say about Cuthbert that he has like some sort of like eidetic memory well, I don't he's, know. The, he's sort of the like sharp one mm. and it's not just it, it's sort of portrayed in his wit because like he's sharp with wit but he's also true. sharp it, you can't be sharp with that sort of like wittiness without mm-hmm. also having like a good grasp of memory and names yeah. because the combination to make wit is like sort of picking things out as you see them and then holding them together into like a, a thread that makes it witty right Mm -hmm. definitely i mean you can't be smart and or you can't be funny and not be smart yeah exactly yeah for sure that's true that's true all right unless you're like a a, you know slapstick comedian yeah i guess that's true i don't know (laughs) (laughs) we get roland's first impression of the facilities and like you said he kind of makes a joke about like wow if this is the whatever i can't hate to see the palace uh." but internally he's kind of being a little bit of a judgy asshole again now the townspeople think of him as being like this rich kid from the inner baronies. And again, this is sort of evidence that as much as we love Roland, they're kind of right. He is a little judgy. He is a little elitist in the way that he views this. Well, he does look around the party and like say like, it's not quite as spectacular as what we would have, even on like these lesser holidays. (laughs) Right. But he also, this is kind of interesting, right? Because up until this point, he has been kind of shady about things. And He's looking around and he's noting kind of the subpar artwork and he's noting nobody's really dressed up. There's a handful of people that are wearing sashes, but for the most part, people are kind of in more common fancy clothes. But at the same time, he also recognizes something that has been lost in Gilead and it's the sense of life. And there's some vibrancy to this part of the world and this at this party that until he kind of experienced it again here, he didn't even realize had been slipping away. And it's sort of this evidence that the world has been, even though it hasn't fully moved on yet in Gilead, there is some part of it that is slipping away that's dying. And he disturbingly kind of makes this comparison to what is happening in Gilead in comparison to this place, he he compares it, the loss of its liveliness to suicide. It happens in a way that you don't sense it's happening like someone who slits their wrists under warm water. You know, oh, but yeah, the life yeah, blood right. is slipping away. And I felt like that was a very grim, but also, you know, very telling kind of description. I forgot about the painting thing until you mentioned it, but you're right. He did go through and say, like, they barely represent what would pass for the previous mayors of this yeah. area. Yeah. Like, oh, mean, yeah. So I guess he's kind of a dig. Yeah, yeah. He's being a little shady. We see Roland, see Susan again. Now, there's been, like, this anticipation from both of them. Like, what's it going to be when they see each other again, you know? And right away, he's just freaking out as soon as he sees her. He can't believe how beautiful she is now that he's seen her in the light. He's taken by her eyes. And just, he is 
a lost cause. There's this great line where he's being brought towards her. And in his head, we get this internal dialogue where he's like, I'm dying. I'm dying as he's being drawn to her. And he's like trying to push back against that and tell him like, get it together, get it together. But it's just such a 14 year old moment where the hormones are a raging in our young Roland. Well, at some point he kind of says like, I I can see how a man would go. I never believed a man who would go mad and, in yes his, in the girl's eyes but like yes. now i see it as possible yes he's like i know it's ridiculous but i get it now it'd be kind of cute and sweet if it were not for how dire these circumstances are if this were just a coming of age love story this moment would be very sweet the other thing is is he gets his first look of thorin and susan and right away he's like oh that must be her uncle or a cousin or something and I'm not sure if he's either very naive or if he's just refusing to see the reality in front of his eyes, but it's Thorin is not hiding this dynamic at all. Yeah, I mean, they're not kissing or anything in front of the crowd, so if you weren't completely aware... He's like holding her hand and putting his arm around her. Maybe a really close relative? I mean, really close. (laughs) Really close. I mean, uh, isn't it kissing cousins? Isn't that the like out in the, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so Roland's like kind of up in the crowd and uh, they switch over from the soft punch to the hard punch. And Roland kind of has to like stand up and and make a point to say that like our father sent us out here for hard punch. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we get the soft punch, please? Right. And it turns into a a little bit of a, a speech. And then what's super um, telling is that, like, Thorin almost doesn't become the person to give the, like, toast to Mm -hmm. the folks. Uh, It almost becomes Jonas. And then, like, they kind of... Well, it's it's Fran Lingle is the boss of the... He's, like, the boss of the Horsens Association. And he's the one that sort of takes up the... Takes up the toast until he gets interrupted. Ah, okay. And then they kind of, like, nod over at the band and like sort of silence and pass it on to um right so it's rhymer in this case and so in this interaction we kind of see where the real power in this dynamic lies and that thor because you know roland looks over and thorin looks like he's about to burst he's like so affronted by what's happening but it's rhymer who's calmly like no you be quiet all right pass it to thorin and and so there's these subtle little moments that roland is picking up on here which basically shows that, like, his power is sort of, like, handed to him as opposed mm-hmm. to him, like, wielding it, which, mm-hmm. you know, is... Uh... Useful idiot. Mm-hmm. 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 So then, uh, you know, the whole crowd applauds. Apparently, Thorin can have a regular voice when he's speaking to crowds, even though he's kind of a weaselly old man when you're talking to him in person. And then Roland and uh, Susan sort of steal some... <laughs> some fleeting glances yet right. again yes. and uh, we move on but you have a lot of stars here and i move fast so what, yes. what else okay so there's a moment here where when roland turns down the hard punch in favor of the soft punch and gives his backstory very humbly about how they had been sent here because they drank and got into some trouble and it just kind of goes to show how clever the backstory is i mean it's believable everybody seems to be buying it but it also allows roland and the guys to stay totally sober right so they can be on top of their game without it arousing any suspicion they aren't appearing to be sober for the sake of playing castles so much as sober for the purpose of dealing with the punishment but the end result is they're able to stay aware yeah exactly 
during all of these moments where Roland and Susan are making all the eyeballs at each other and as much as they're like, pretend you don't know me, like they're just not doing a very good job of hiding <laughs> it. Aunt Court is on that immediately, which is concerning. She does not miss much, and Roland sees her seeing, and yet he still can't quite get himself under control. And if she's this observant and this keyed in, that could be a problem. Yeah, and, and so uh, you kind of, while Roland and her are making eyes, you see Aunt Cord like kind of gank on her a little bit and talk in her ear. And then we, we come to find out that Aunt Cord is like, I saw your cow's eyes, and if I saw them, everybody else probably saw them too. Yeah, did Jonas see them? Money Warren has been him? exchanged, you know, uh, promises have been made, uh, the weird lady has been visited, um, this is something you can't get out of, girl. And she kind of scolds her a little bit and tells her to mind her manners, and then Susan's almost about ready to, like, pop off. And yeah. her aunt like invokes her dad as mm-hmm. like uh mm-hmm. you know you'd be sh- bringing shame on the family and like your dad didn't raise you that way and and invoking your, her dad's name basically is this like trick that she's like you know internally the aunt is like basically <laughs> that's all he was ever good for in making this beautiful girl here. Yeah, oof. Our internal life of Aunt Court is grim, dude. Grim. She sucks. It's very sad the way that she uses her father's name to control her. It works every time. It's just a trigger for her. All of her critical thinking shuts down. All of her self-preservation shuts down as soon as she hears his name. And it's really sad that she's being, that Pat is being used, his memory is being used to shame her into keeping her word, a word that she probably should never have given in the first place, especially when in the next section, when Coral's talking about this, we know that someone who knew Pat Delgado would have actually have felt a lot of shame around what is all that is happening. So his name is not only being used to control her, but he's it's being used to control her in a way that would actually make her disappointed in him. And so it's and she's only doing it because she wants him to be her to be proud of. It. It's just such a cruel multi levels of manipulation here that really really makes me hate Aunt Cord. She is a despicable person. Okay, so then Roland basically gets sat down be- between a bunch of ranchers and starts kind of like talking their ear off about mm-hmm. what's available and what kind of stocks available. And at first, like the the rancher, he's kind of pretending to be like really wasted when he's only yeah. drinking <laughs> at a regular pace, and, and sort of gives him like some fictitious numbers about how many uh, head of of horse that they have and what kind of animal and livestock they have available. And so Roland kind of like pushes on him a little bit and you sort of right. feel this. Uh, and I think in, in Roland's internal dialogue, you feel this sort of, he feels this churn between like the surface of the water and what's underneath yeah. of the water. Roland makes a very astute observation here where he says in Hambry, the waters on top and the waters below seem to run in different directions. Basically this guy is like giving him one story and that's the story you see from the surface. Right. But like you go a little bit further and, and during the course of their conversation, like Roland finally like kind of gets him to realize that he's just a kid. Mm-hmm. And at that point, he's like, listen, are you going to use your words against me or my words against me in the future? Is this going to come back to haunt me? And Roland has to like reassure him by saying like, look, man, um, we don't have enough forces uh, available to come down here to do anything. We're just here to get a count. And those guys are all committed up in their area because Basically, they have the stock that you know about, 
And then right. all the fishers and the uh, non-horse folks also have their own stock of horses. And this is where we find out that Hambry isn't bad and contaminated a place as some of the other parts of the kingdom no. because Mm-mm. the threaded stock is down and you're more likely than not to get a good calf out of these horses and cows and whatever. Yeah. And that's like a a, a good sign. And I almost wonder when you mentioned the, uh, the warmness of the party and like the thing that was missing. Yeah. I almost think that spark is part of it that like oh, – yeah life going on in a more normal way and without yep. like that subtle uh i don't know nastiness of like mutes and stuff like that is right is, is probably making it a nicer place right but this and whole it, time oh go ahead i would say and but it also tells you a little bit about what's happening in gilead too where the corruption is even though it's subtle is actually starting to affect it yep Whereas, like, this, it feels like it's a real party. There, it feels like you're going through the steps to, mm-hmm. like, put on the it's facade grand, of a party. It's grand. It's over the top. They're, you're there with nobility. You have beautiful clothing. And yet there is some essential sort of spark of life that is missing that speaks to what's happening below the surface. Whereas here, maybe it's a simpler life. And as we know, corruption is on the horizon because, well, I mean, potentially because of who is they're sort of running things behind the scene but there's still it's still in some ways untouched by that and it gives you a sense of really kind of what is lost when the world does move on yeah it's kind of sad um so roland is like also sort of in between conversations making like eyes at susan whenever he can get a furtive glance mm-hmm. and sort of asking you know a, a little bit like casually about her and uh, Thorin's wife is seated kind of near them, which is also his sister. Like, his sister. Oh, sister, excuse me. His sister Coral, a.k.a. the owner of the Traveler's Rest. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, so his sister is sitting next to him. And every time Rick Roland asks, like, the, the rancher will say something like, oh, she's beautiful. And she'll kind of harumph in the background. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so finally, like, Roland's like, what is he, cousin or something? And, and the rancher is like, boy, <laughs> you are some kind of naive. Well, it's so here's the thing is he, the rancher actually tries to kind to of sugarcoat soften it. it. Yes. Coral, who, you know, her delivery is not the best, but unlike everybody else who's just been blowing smoke up Roland's ass all night, Coral actually is one of the few people that actually gives it to him straight. You know, she breaks it down to Roland, unlike anybody else, pretty much, you know, that basically what is really happening here she gives him straight answers and she does it in a way that you can sense sort of the underlying disgust she has with her brother and this is where she basically explains to him you know like her her father would be disgusted if he could see this he would be so disappointed if he could see his daughter now yeah and her disgust is not just in like explaining what a jilly girl is but also explaining that like generations and past that used to be a very expensive prostitute yeah, I mean, I think she's also just totally disgusted by her own brother, you know? I mean, his behavior is so humiliating, and 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 I think she's just like, you know, here he is, the mayor of town, and he's a moron, and also a horny old toad, and it's this whole thing with him wanting to date a 14-year-old is disgusting. Well, and so Roland, like, this whole time has kind of been picking up on um, on Thorne's wife being sad. Yeah. 
And like now he kind of realizes what's going on. And there's even a moment where when he like glances at Susan, he sort of like mentally compares the jewelry that each one of them gets to wear. Yeah. And Susan's wearing like the fancy stuff and his wife is wearing the like mid to low tier stuff. Yeah. And that's like, yeah. Yeah. He does not take the news well. I think he looks at Olive and then thinks that he wishes he could kill Suzanne. Yeah. Shoot her <laughs> he in her heart, sh- I think is the yeah, term. That he uses. Yeah. I mean, even as he's saying it, he knows he's full of shit, but there is some part of him that's just so disgusted because, you know, not only is she wearing the jewelry and not only is she sitting there, is not only is she in that situation, but she's like laughing uproariously while this is all happening. While his wife, you know, meekly sits across the room looking smiling hopefully and sadly i mean it's it is really heartbreaking for anyone but especially if you consider roland's situation where he's essentially been sent out east to deal with all of this in part to hide him from martin because of all you know all the stuff that martin is doing home including sleeping with his mom and cuckolding his dad so this probably is a little triggering for 14 year old Rowan to see this, you know, to have his heart broken with this girl that he's like so fat, like infatuated with. And then also to have it kind of be tied into something that is so incredibly painful in his own life, his own sort of past injuries. You know, this is, this is not great for Rowan. Not to mention that, but like young passion, like it's yeah. the classic, yeah. you wronged me. I still love you, but I'm so mad at you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually very smart to the way that this book is structured in terms of how we're introduced to Susan, when we're introduced to Susan, how much time we spend inside Susan's own head and understanding exactly what her situation is and how she's been manipulated into it. Because in a different book, if this were introduced any other way, and I don't think that we would find Susan to at all be a sympathetic character. Yeah, I think we would despise her. We would see her in the same way that Roland does in this moment in the heat of his passion where he's just like, look at her laughing. Look at her trying to get this money. Look at this, you know, her selling her body, which, by the way, who gives a shit? But, you know, you the point is she would not be the sympathetic character she is now. But as you're watching this unfold and he's getting angry with her. I found myself being angry with Roland because I she he's making these assumptions about her and we know that she's actually a victim in this whole thing. And I think it's just really clever writing on King's part to to structure it in this way. Especially well, if we're supposed to get on board with this love story. Like I don't think you'd ever give a shit about their love story if if you saw Susan in a different perspective. I don't know though. I think um I think part of Roland's anger is actually that he would have liked to have known the details of this uh prehence when they had first met out in the thing and mm. the, the not knowing and then finding out suddenly is more shocking to him whereas mm. like if she's like i think you're great um after i'm done with this thing that i've got to do right i'll love you forever and roland would probably been like ah okay you know i mean that's a lot to ask someone you just met at night on the road that's true like calm down but to have this level of epic like (laughs) yeah passion like you almost Mm -hmm. think it would be like romeo and juliet type stuff going on yeah 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot happening at this table. We kind of went past it kind of quickly, but there's a lot of intrigue happening around the horses prior to this, where, you know, everybody's eyes are like darting back and, and forth. And listening in and like yeah. leaning in on the conversation so that they can hear what's going on. Right. So it's like very clear, you know, Roland is very focused on what's happening with the situation with Susan, but like the real shit that matters at this table is the stuff we don't even know why everybody's being so weird about the horses. Like, is is it that they just genuinely are concerned that the affiliation is going to come in and be like, yoink my horses or is, you know, there's something or are more people in on whatever is happening around the big coffin hunter, Reimer, Rhea Coos, pink crystal than we, than we know. Like, and that's part of what's so great about this book so far is kind of how many levels of mysteries and like all the paranoia and who is aligned with who, all of that is very unclear. You just know, something is going on and it kind of places us in the same place as Roland where as he leaves this dinner when we get into the next chapter he knows there's stuff happening but he can't quite figure out what it is and and that just makes for compelling reading I think yeah yeah I guess I don't have actually anything to add to that you're absolutely right Um, (laughs) well thank you I'll take it (laughs) well so for me like the feeling I got from the like kind of horsemen's association in general is that they owe a certain amount of horses as fealty to Mm -hmm. the um you know affiliation to affiliation and they're fine with that but they don't want the affiliation reaching deeper into their pockets Mm -hmm. and it's almost like a side hustle where you're like i got a bunch of other stuff going on and if i were like to pony up to the tax routine i would actually owe you a cut of that too but i don't want you coming after me for that so i need to set it aside yeah Mm -hmm. i mean and it could be that's like the most i think um normal innocent kind of thing that they're just kind of kind of worrying financially like what kind of impact it's going to have on them and making sure they don't want to they don't want to talk. They don't want to tip their hand about exactly how much resources they have because they don't want to end up having to give up more of it. The problem yep. is, is the addition of the, the big coffin hunters, right? And we know they are up to no good. So there could be a much bigger conspiracy, and we just don't know yet. Absolutely. So they basically Roland basically tricks him into, or not tricks him, but like talks him into letting him know that there's probably an extra yeah. hundred and fifty to two hundred head yeah. that they haven't really claimed or like let him know about and roland's actually like pretty good about following along with the numbers and gets it all down pretty pat so yeah there you go we'll see Um, oh go ahead no 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 i'm just saying we'll see we'll see what happens yeah exactly (laughs) so while they're finishing up their uh their drinks and and their festivities like the other room is being prepared for a dance and like the tables have been moved and so on and so they all like stand up and pile into this other room and there's a classic game that apparently is played in Hambury where they like play music and then stop and you're left stuck with the person you're in front of. Put together odd couples like a tall man and a short man, uh, a fat guy and his skinny girl and, and so on. And like it's sort of like pl- having a game of it. And then finally, Roland and Susanna get stuck together. And when they do, uh, Susan is trying to play it cool and Roland like gives her a slam yeah like a verbal stab and then like just snaps away from her at the end of it where she has nothing left to say and is just hurt and roland in doing so much anger and lashing out at her hurts himself in the same manner and it's just this like sort of awful moment where 
he didn't want to be mean, but he wanted to be mean. Right. And well, then, he was just like, he was so in his feelings that even as he's saying the words, he's like, what are you doing? Put him back, put him back, put him back. Yeah. And then at the same time, she is mad at him for the statement, but it also like it triggers on all of the guilt that she has for the mm-hmm. thing that she's been roped into. And this becomes right. like a, a horrible and hurtful thing that yeah. uh, she takes through the rest of the dance and Roland, like, he wants to wander away from the party. And I think the internal dialogue is something like, I want to pull this false mask off yes. and burn it with the face that I have underneath. I am so angry. I mean, I think it's that he has to continue to pretend. It's such a great <laughs> description. It's the hormones. Roland may be a gunslinger and he may have all the social graces that Gilead can instow in a boy. But can't in this modes. moment, his behavior just absolutely exposes his age and reminds you that this is not the Roland of of now. This is a 14-year-old version of Roland. Yeah. And then, you know, like, after you say something like that, everybody regrets and is is angry internally. Yeah, I just just feel so bad for Susan. He just sort of verbally slaps her, and she goes through this shock, hurt, anger flashes across her face because it hurts because she knows part in part it's true. And it hurts because it's coming from him and she's shocked. You know, it's just like, oh, I felt bad for her in that moment. Roland, be nice. Behave yourself. Well, and don't make eyes with her all night. And then like you get up to her and you insult her, you know? Yeah, it's not it's not it's not the move. It's definitely not the move. It's not how you you get the ladies. All right. So chapter six, Shimi. But this doesn't actually start with Shimi. Let's preface that by (laughs) saying this is like an end of party portion. Oh right, we do get a little we get a little flashback of all what happens to all of our characters after the after the little you know the hot shindig. At yeah, Mary exactly. Lawrence. So like, um, so basically, we enter a new chapter, but instead of going to the new chapter, Stephen King chooses to finish up the previous chapter. <laughs> but right. I don't know, I don't know why. Uh, but uh, apparently, uh, he wants to do some um, some forward into the party as the party is sort of tapering down. And we have all of Thorin like heading home and being sad at her house, and Susan heading home or heading to Thorin's mansion and being sad in her room, mm-hmm. uh, divested of her jewels. We kind of get this like really sad look at uh, Thorin's wife yeah. and her sort of like internally thinking about her yeah. husband. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing is like this in this internal dialogue, you'd think like after being relegated to the second table and not being treated very well that she'd be mad at him, but she still like secretly loves her husband, oh, even though he's a, he's a turd and like is embarrassed for him and for their family because she can blatantly see that like, he's not paying attention to their realm or kingdom or whatever. Mm-hmm. And is instead paying attention to this girl while like other shenanigans are going on in the background. And she doesn't know what's afoot, but she knows that the foot is inevitably there. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is that if her perspective is to believe Hart Thorne wasn't always just a horny old fool, and maybe he was even a decent mayor at at some point, you know, and this is a fairly recent uh, change. Although, you know, Roland did talk about how he had heard rumors of what Thorne was like before he came to town. But but the point is, is that it's possible that maybe he wasn't always this way, but it's a little bit suspect because she also kind of blames the stuff with Susan, which would kind of try, you know, she makes her a slightly unreliable narrator, but it is interesting that she can, even she can see that there's something shady going on. And, um, is, you know, 
can't really do anything about it. And it kind of gives you some insight about what it is like to be a woman in Hambry, right? Like all the women that we are following in this situation are in some varying degree subjugated, right? Whether it's Susan who is being sold off essentially to as a brood mare to Mayor Thorne because he wants to bang her, even though she's 14 <laughs> can I, or 16, I guess. 16. Let me a reiterate that. Mare. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of the deal that she struck kind of na- naively. Like that was the ideal scenario for her. Um, and then there is of course, Olive who, who is basically being shoved aside publicly and also recognizes there's a problem in town can do nothing about it and then there's coral who i arguably is the most independent of all the women right so she owns the travelers in she kind of comes and goes as she pleases but you can still sense a, a, like a bitterness about her in the way that she's talking about her brother and susan and so um i don't know exactly what king is trying to say about this but but we do every portrait of womanhood we see in hambury in some way is very much under a social thumb you know yeah it's kind of gross actually it's really gross it's actually very very gross and to flash back a little bit to susan we can see how the after effects of the party on her too and she's also like olive the thing is is they actually have more in common than you they might think she's equally miserable about the situation for for different reasons for one thing she got felt up by the disgusting old thorn in the hallway before she left and Ugh, if anyone ever says I burn for the reap to me, oh no, <laughs> that is a deal breaker. <laughs> it's so freaking gross. But it confirmed basically what Rhea had said to her that this isn't a situation where they're just, you know, going to have a child together. She's going to provide an heir for him or whatever, but th- that really this is just about him wanting to bang her. And so that's really upsetting and, and realizing exactly how manipulated she's being and kind of being faced with sort of the social re- repercussions of, of of this agreement that probably was not sold to her when they were telling her like, oh, we'll have all this money and you can have a baby and all that stuff that essentially there's there are people who are going to be judging her in in this case it was will durborn which of course stings the worst because his opinion is the one she that matters to her the most so i don't know it, it's just really hard to see how hard she's being on herself well so internally she also like kind of goes back to um like almost a vision of her father yes and so she's having this moment where she's like thinking about him and her father basically tells her like in in this dream and in this like probably reality that happened a long time ago now uh, you have three choices you can either do the thing, not do the thing, or, you know, basically decide to not interact with the thing. To do nothing. And, yeah. yeah, do nothing and, like, inevitably have whatever happens, happens. Right. And so she's in this spot and, like, she has to determine whether she's going to, like, roll with it or do something about it. I also think she understands that her father thought that last option was the maybe the path of cowards and is kind of belatedly realizing that she kind of had an opportunity to do a thing or not do a thing, but she instead just sort of drifted into this situation. And so I guess the only other person whose opinion she cares more about than Will's is her father's. And so in addition to feeling the shame around Will confronting her, she's also kind of reflecting on matters of character as described by her father and realizing that she's fallen short of that. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. Dark. 
Yeah, it's re- actually really dark. And uh, then there's oh, one other thing that happens in this section, uh, a couple, but one that I want to talk about is there's a very brief mention of the ranchers and Thorin and Jonas all meeting up after the party and kind of like having a very intense palaver about what, what had gone down. And it's the King tells us that some of them are very relieved that they're so young. And so I don't know that we get a ton of information in terms of the content in the conversation, but I think it's interesting to know who was a party to the conversation, which included, you know, Thorin, Reimer, Jonas, and the Ranchers and Horse Association. So potentially our conspiracy is a lot bigger than just this, you know, small little cadre at the top. Well, definitely, because, you know, the the dude from the Ranchers Association has to, like, seat power to the mayor. Right, it's, right. It's a little, a little uh, suspicious, right? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, the other weird thing is, like, Jonas kind of, like, hangs around even later. And the cleaning people show up. Yeah, they, like, <laughs> sort of like terrorizes the cleaning people, and and even when they don't see him around anymore, they're feared that he's lurking in the shadows. And right. by lurking in the shadows, like they they aren't singing, or apparently they sing and dance when they're by themselves. But like right. with the fear of Jonas hanging out in the background, it's like no dancing or singing for you guys. No, it's interesting that they kind of treat him like he's the boogeyman, because that's actually a phrase that comes back later in this chapter. Yeah, that's true. We cut to scene take and move on to the tavern. Yeah. And this is where the like real action begins. Yeah. So we, we kind of find out that uh, DePape and Reynolds were like out working in the field, covering up these old tankers uh, with like pine branches all day and night and it's to the point where they have like sap stuck to their fingers yeah they're kind of in like a grumpy mood because they've had to do all this work and they're kind of stinky and gross mm-hmm. and like stephen king even goes down to the point where it's like you can just barely see their coffin hunter tattoos on their hands and they they are just not feeling it and so these guys like head to the bar to drink and we get like this kind of um weird colorful scene of like love this a lady like singing lyrics at the top of her lungs while the piano player plays the bartender is like to the point where he's serving drinks but not even having casual conversation with the attendees of the bar and there's a lady in the background yes doing double hand jumps yes and smoking a pipe at the killian giving two handies while smoking a pipe (laughs) and it's like that's that's a funny little bit. Um, for... I, I just there's something delightfully working class about her, just like chugging away on two dicks and and smoking a pipe. It feels like one of those. Um, have you ever seen one of those like lewd pop ups from like the uh, 1920s or 1910s? No, but the, like, that the Irish amazing. Ones, where like as you pull out the tab, like a little drunk guy pops up, and then a little drunk kid pops up, and then like the lady's top comes down and goes back up again. Oh my god, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of like the scene sort of feels like that that kind of weird drunken mood and, and so uh, mainly they're like wander they're they're like hanging out at the bar grumpy like kind of looking for almost someone to terrorize or to beat up right and then we have this um this poor handicapped kid who's like going around getting camel piss oh, and apparently what camel piss is is like um he collects all the leftover beers that people haven't finished and pours them into a big jug 
And then the jug's at the back of the bar for anybody who wants really cheap beers. Right. <laughs> so it's like three cents a beer or something like that. Three cents a shot. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, whoa, well, that's Oof. gross. Oof. And, and it's like none of the locals drink it, but we get plenty of travelers who don't know any better and more than happy to drink the camel piss. And it's, yeah. And so the, the these two guys are like basically batting back and forth, and the one's about ready to go get some some uh, food. Uh, there's some like mussels that it came up, or some clams or oysters mm-hmm. or something like that. And, and then the there's a startling noise, and this younger cowboy that's kind of leaned up with the against the bar, like kicks his foot out and trips Shimi. Mm-hmm. And Shimi spills spills this beer all over the ground, and then of course over DePape as well. And so DePape kind of reads the room mm-hmm. and is immediately like, "Well, I was pissed off, and I feel like kind of getting into something anyway. So let's turn this into a show." Yeah, and, and like immediately the the cowboy that tripped uh, um, Shimi, he like kind of is like, "Don't look at me. That wasn't my fault." <laughs> Right. And, and like the girl still a lot singing. of heroes up in Traveler's Rest. Exactly. <laughs> and then like the girl that's singing keeps belting her lyrics until she realizes that the music is gone. And it's almost like this uh, record scratch moment. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it, it's such a like classic Western moment. Right. Yeah. Like where, where stuff starts to go down and everybody gets quiet, you know, and everybody stands back. Yeah. And like, so what does he choose to do? Like the pape chooses to like inflict harm upon this poor kid Mm -hmm. and and like there's even like some like internal dialogue from the bartender that's like i don't want this kid to get hurt he's like a smile in a dark place like even when like it's the worst of winter like you can always get like a happy smile out of this guy Mm -hmm. that you can't get out of regular folks (laughs) it's like whoa yeah i I don't know anyway so i agree i agree basically like pins all of this down on that guy and is about ready to make him clean his boots and then, and then, <laughs> well, uh, before I move on though, there, you've got three stars here. So did I, what yeah, did I let miss? me just quickly, I got a couple of quick things to say about this section. I mean, we get some great character moments, great by, I mean, in terms of they inform the character, not they're likable in any way of both DePape and Reynolds. DePape, who we have not met, we've heard of him, but we haven't actually met him till now. And he is a real proper piece of shit. You know, he's whining about Nibs being off, you know, being a jerk to anyone around him. But worst of all, we quickly learn that he is not just a whiny, complainy, grumpy guy. I mean, those aren't great qualities, but we can live with those qualities. No, he's also a cruel bully, with like no regard for human life. Uh, he chooses to pick on, to cruelly pick on the harmless Shimi, not because he's really offended by the fact that he got the booze spilled on him. He he doesn't mind the smell of it. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, it didn't actually get through with his boots to get him wet, but because basically because he's bored and spoiling for a fight and he wants some entertainment and what's more entertaining than being cruel to Shimi. And then as he's, pretty much already decided going to kill him no matter what anyway he wants to see if he'll enjoy having his boots licked and maybe he'll (laughs) add it to his repertoire i mean he could not be more of a scumbag if he tried and uh whereas reynolds is not quite as cruel but obviously he doesn't give a shit about this kid he he's kind of like i want to sit back and see what happens he's entertained by it and that's not that surprising. These are villains. You know, that's it's not that shocking. But I do think there is one kind of great moment with him as well. Like, we, he's just, they're both described as being, like, sweaty and smelly and covered with, like, this sticky sap 
from yep. all the pine branches. And yet, when when Reynolds goes over to get his clams, he's still he's got his silk lined robe, and it's sort of like billowing around him as he goes over to get his food. And it's just this reminder of like, how vain he is and how preening he is, even when he's just covered from head to toe in sap. <laughs> so I mean, they're these little tiny character moments, but you really do feel like even in just these two brief moments with these characters you you pretty much know who they are oh yeah uh they're like rotten to the core dudes oh, and yeah. like even when um so where i was going is he's about to ask uh, shimi to lick his boots and like he's thinking to himself like maybe i could have my girl try this on me if if i like it <laughs> you know it's like uh, it's a really weird thing to be thinking about when you're gonna like make some poor guy lick your boots yeah and, and shimi like breaks down into tears and is like do i have to and the bartender right. tries to like jump in and succeed uh, and say you know like your drinks are on me all night like don't worry about it let him polish your boots as good as new and and we'll call it even and the pape's not having any of it Right, And then, around the corner, we hear the calm and soothing voice of Cuthbert, who mm-hmm. <laughs> has, like, a slingshot drawn with a ball bearing in it. Yeah. And, like, is basically pointed at him and says, like, hey, you know, don't do not do this to the kid. And right. and at first, they're like, what? What the? Whatever, you know. And, like, they're, they're like, we're going to give you one chance to get out of here, kid. <laughs> and Cuthbert's like... No, you take my one chance and you give it to Shimi over there and let him out. I can't have people getting diseases from looking boots. It's disgusting. It's unheard of. I'd love to see it, but it's unheard of. <laughs> yeah, I love how you know immediately it's Cuthbert, too, just by what he says, but also the way he says it. There's this voice that's full of amusement, and you're like, oh, I know that voice. I know exactly who this is going to be. Even before we get the description of him having the rook skull around his neck, you know it's Cuthbert with the, like, the mind simply quails. Like, who else would say that by Cuthbert? And it's such a relief when he speaks up, too, because I don't want to watch Shimi lick these boots. And and so when he does, you're just like, oh, thank God. And, like, like Shimi, he earned my heart forever in this scene, even though we'll get into whether or not it was such a good idea in the long run. Eddie has a place in my heart forever, but this was the moment for me where Cuthbert earned his spot Sorry. in my heart as well. Yeah, and so, like, he kind of takes command of the situation, and the the guy starts to draw his gun. And meanwhile, like, Cuthbert, who's actually paying attention to the entire scene, yeah. sees the guy that's, like, trying to casually sneak around and, like, sort of lets it slide. Yeah. Like, he's got, he's got this plan already in play, and there's... Like a later mention that he has like the shine a little bit. No, that's Elaine. Or Elaine. Okay, yeah. yeah. So one of them like kind of knows a little but more. But I than... feel like they know each other so well that, that there's they just like, expect the other one to jump Like in. he knows what he knows exactly what Elaine is going to do. But also there is some aspect of this that our three coffin hunters and our three gunslingers all are kind of proxies for one another. And so we have DePape and Cuthbert, who are kind of like the more impulsive, outspoken ones. And then there's sort of like the quiet, more observant, maybe a little bit slyer ones, which are Elaine and um, Reynolds. Right. And then, of course, Jonas and and Roland. Okay, that makes sense. I didn't really think about it like that. Yeah. Uh, so basically he takes a, a pop shot at, uh, at DePape and like bloodies him up a bit. 
Yeah, takes like, his fingernail off. <laughs> yeah, and like if he'd have he'd have been a little bit lower, like the joke is he'd been smoking, you know, blowing rings through his hand for the rest of his life. <laughs> and then like Reynolds basically gets the jump on him. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he shows up behind him, and so now we have like sort of a standoff. And Reynolds is expecting him almost to like placate to this situation. And <laughs> Keith Burst's like, nah, I'm not doing anything. Like, ask your friend over there. Like, y- y- you think uh, I can't kill him before <laughs> you kill me? And he's like, no, 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 you know, d- don't don't shoot, don't shoot. <laughs> and s- so you're at a weird standpoint there. And then Stephen King, like, backs away for a moment. Yeah. And, like, almost, like, basically paints the legend of hundreds of years to come. I know. In this this is town. where you know shit's about to get good. I love these moments where King pulls back and gives us some larger content like context of uh, and and how these things these stories get wove into legend like local legends it's it's such a cool moment but it also kind of it's very it's this whole part is very cinematic like you know you can feel you get the full like spaghetti western vibes from this this is this is peak western no weird western just western well there's even a point where like um when de pape stumbles like somebody kind of trips him (laughs) Right. And they like and kick like, his gun away. Yeah. Yeah, kick his gun away. And there's like uh there's a stop where Stephen King just says like at the po- that point no one would claim it. But years in the future, yeah, hundreds everybody. of people would claim it. <laughs> it's so good. I see, I love it. You can feel like Stephen King just like riffing and having a good time in this scene. And it it, it definitely it comes through and you as a reader definitely get caught up in that same excitement. <laughs> so we're at this like point where we think we're in a stalemate right right and then like uh elaine comes up behind reynolds mm-hmm. and basically like c- catches him so now we have a knife to the throat a gun to the back and a uh slingshot to the face and like each time one of these happens it's like more compounding right. and like people in the bar you can see are like reacting more and more and then stephen king spends some more time talking about like uh, how people will talk about this for years to come uh-huh. and like the big coffin hunters getting you know the drop on by <laughs> by these kids yeah and like and then it's not just the drop on it's the drop on the drop on <laughs> the drop on now yeah mm-hmm. and so now we're we're two levels deep and we're wondering what's gonna happen and pretty soon uh jonas shows up and like Let's pause right there nope, real quick ahead. before we get into Jonas, because Jonas is uh, coming really quickly. I just want to step back and talk a little bit about uh, Cuthbert's weapon. So, slingshot? yeah, he's <laughs> literally brought a slingshot to a knife fight. <laughs> well, to a gunfight. <laughs> or, actually. I'm sorry, to a gunfight. Correct. You're correct. If we didn't already know what we know about Cuthbert, it would feel very much more like a David and Goliath moment, which I guess ultimately it kind of is because they're, you know, he's a child. This guy is older presumably more seasoned but because we know it's in 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 cooper's hand we know it's not just a child's toy but it's still visually it's a child's toy versus a big coffin hunter which kind of has these sort of biblical overtones um and it also serves visually as a reminder that these two are kids yeah and it's also 
very interesting to watch how these two groups sort of maneuver for supremacy in the situation. Like, obviously, fate ultimately sides with our guys. But I love that all of this also is being told from the big coffin hunters' perspectives. You know, one by one, we get to watch their horror as the situation just completely spins out of their control. Each of them is totally shook when they, like, pull a gun on someone. And then these kids, who are, first of all, kids, but also not armed with guns, are just like, no no i'm not gonna drop my weapon and like cool as cucumbers and somehow managing to kind of beat them in the struggle for power in this situation and so i think it would be one thing to hear it from cuthbert and elaine's perspectives but it's so much more interesting getting that outsider perspective who so that they can like be observe they can observe and also feel that we can see that internal shock that they experience when they're like holy shit these kids are not what we thought they were yeah yeah i mean basically the adults are all like shocked and jaw dropping at the fact that this is going down. I just love that one by one, there's a moment where they're like, what, what, (laughs) you know, each time they have a situation where they think that like, surely this kid is going to drop his weapon. And they're just like, I decline. I respectfully decline. It's just (laughs) such a great, it's such a great moment. I don't know. I love this scene so much. I can't even tell you. So then Jonas comes like kind of rolling into the scene and like he's a little more um, deep thinking than these yeah. other two. So he's like looking around to make sure that there's no one to get the drop on him because mm-hmm. <laughs> he knows there are normally three of them. And he sees that he's in the clear and like looks in to check it out and is flabbergasted to find out that <laughs> his men have been gotten the drop on by these kids. And so Jonas finally pulls up behind Elaine and is like, now you drop it. Yeah. (laughs) And like, they still don't back down. No. They're like, no, uh, not going to happen. And like, Jonas is getting pissed internally, but trying to remain calm externally and like worried that if the entire town realizes that these guys can't handle themselves against a handful of kids, then their right. work is is no longer going to happen there, which like alludes to the type of work that they may be up to right. in town. Right. Let me read you this quote because I loved it. Um, so this is when, when he's looking in and seeing how this is all going down. He says, marvelous. He would have thought it better than a traveling circus if it were not for the problems that would follow the follow if this were not put right what sort of work could they do in hambury if it got around that the boogeyman were afraid of children instead of vice versa so i i mean i just kind of love his sarcastic remark here you know there's none of him being like oh no my friends are in danger like immediately all he's just playing castle he's just thinking about like what he's gonna do to be able to maintain whatever sort of equilibrium they have there in order for him to be able to do what he's there to do but also like i said before this is a, the moment where we find out that Jonas himself thinks of them as the boogeyman, um, that that's their role there among others. So that's that's interesting. And I don't know what that means long term, but the fact that they are adopting that role is interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really think or put a whole lot on the boogeyman other than like they are kind of the enforcer of the long hand of like evil. I guess it's just because the way there's that scene where we have the cleaning women who see him as ill spectra, which is like, it's not really a, it's a word, but it doesn't mean like, it's, I think it's like bastardized essentially to okay. mean like ghost or boogeyman. 
And so for that to be immediately followed by Jonas calling himself the boogeyman, I think there's some significance there. I don't know how much, but I do think that there's something there that he's intentionally intimidating people. His presence is intimidating. But wait, wait, al- did Stephen King like uh, hijack Spanish and <laughs> do? Yeah, El Spectro. I looked it up, and it doesn't mean like the ghost or anything like that. Jonas is, is created the conga line that is this <laughs> um, mm-hmm. this standoff, or I guess since we use some Spanish there, so, uh, this the Mexican standoff, uh, whatever sure. that has to do with anything. Um, so then we cut to Roland, who's like sort of like sadly wandering around town and yes. like thinking to himself, like, well, I didn't give those guys any money, so they can't get in trouble with gambling or drinking. Right. Uh, so we should be good there. And, like, he's sort of perplexed and, and thinking heavily about uh, Susan and, like, what he's what he's done and what it's up to. This is where he kind of mentions internally that, like, he would even be okay if she had his kid as mm-hmm. long as they were, like, together later. Right. And that, like, shows uh, some deep thinking on Roland's part yeah. and, like some long life planning with right. this girl that apparently is, is bound to be his future and forever woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it's sort of, so it's sort of a strange internal dialogue. And meanwhile, he's also like sort of commiserating and like wondering about the different characters in town and then thinking about his own mother and the craziness that happened with her. And this is where he kind of like mentions the smell of the room and like some other kind of more specific like sad family father stuff yeah and and so as he's deep thinking he like kind of wanders over to the traveler's rest and he doesn't have um the gift of sight like uh his other buddies but uh yeah Mm -hmm. but he does have like a good intuition and so roland like jumps behind the statue and the description of the statue is pretty important it's actually like the seven seven of the uh um of the beam holders so it's like the turtle the fox the bear and a bunch of other ones and that's the statue that just happens to be behind jonas mm-hmm. and jonas like looks around and sees that uh the cat moves in the alley and thinks that's the only thing going on and as soon as he turns back around roland like rushes up and now <laughs> We have the extra layer of the onion of Roland getting the drop on Jonas yeah. with a knife to the back. Yeah. When they switch over here, I was just kind of like, because it's in the heat of the moment where Jonas has now got a gun on Elaine and he's threatening him. You know, essentially has decided at this point, screw giving these kids short, sore paws. Like, this shit cannot stand. These kids are going to die, right? And you're like, oh my God. And then it's like Stephen King ratchets up that tension and is like, okay, let's talk about Roland. You're like, no! what's going on he really plays with that a little bit in this section in a way that's really fun but then when we like you said when we get to roland he's like very confused he's having all these feelings about susan but in addition to these thoughts that he's having about susan he's also kind of like he can tell that there's something amiss in this town like there's mysteries that are unfolding and he but he cannot pull himself out of this obsession with Susan enough to think clear-headedly enough to start putting the pieces together. He really is kind of at this point 
like we've kind of talked about how potentially it could be a weakness that he's so caught up in her and like distracted by her. Now we're seeing the real time problem where he, even when faced with knowing that he needs to be clear headed in this moment and puzzle through a problem, he can't because he's just so like in his feelings about Susan and, you know, he's trying to remember the face of his father and he just like, can't seem to do it. And so it just so happens that he decides like, screw it. I'm just going to entertain myself, hang out with the guys for a little bit, see if I can distract myself. And, and I kind of do feel like, that's once again Ka putting its finger on the on the thumb of the scale in Roland's favor. I mean, we'll see how long Ka stays with them. Hopefully, forever, and everything turns out great. But uh, <laughs> and the reason I say that is, I think it's really interesting that when he gets there and he gets there just in time to see Jonas do something with his body language that's suspicious and still have time to duck behind a statue statue if you recall is the statue of the bear that it's uh, the uh, seven of the 12 creatures of the beam right exactly but what's interesting is that is the beam that roland and the gang are on currently now i don't know that it has a ton of significance other than it just sort of like we've talked about history rhyming or you know strange coincidences and i think that it's just a, a little detail uh, where, you know, he's back on the, the he's back on the bear, behind the bear, right? I don't know. It's just interesting. Hmm. So he's a bear cub. I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, then we cut back to, like, kind of some internal shock from some of the bar uh, folks. I Again, this is another one of those tension-building scenes where we just, for a minute, we're in we're in petty the trotter's head she she's dancing on the bar she could get down because there's a gunfight but oh it's just so good it's so juicy she can't and and it's it's this thing where stephen king loves to just draw that tension out a little bit longer he just wants to tease us a little bit more you know unnecessary detail except for just to like one more thing before we find out what happens next i just kind of picture a woman standing in the bar doing the like old-timey hand fan you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. with like the wiggling hand to like oh oh oh, oh lordy oh. lordy oh man uh, okay so um then we got back to the action again yes. so uh elaine reminds jonas uh that they are uh part of the affiliation and and tells him that like their dads could come after him and like they'd be strung up and so on and jonas doesn't really care he's like your fathers aren't important to me neither is the affiliation right not this far out here and so basically, like, nothing's really going anywhere. And then Roland gets the drop on him, as I mentioned. Right. So now so now we have, like, all of these men in a row. And, and, and basically, Jonas knows that, like, Roland's not joking about no. stabbing him. And none of the other guys are, not, are joking about their point in this, like, now conga line yeah. of death. And luckily, before um, anything can go too crazy, uh, the sheriff shows up. And right before that, one other thing to mention is, like, Shimi's kind of, like, escaping off to the side. Yeah. And, like, he takes a moment to, like, exalt in the fact that uh, Keith Burt saved him by, like, jumping in and, like, gives him, like, oh, thank you, sir. He, like, stops and and kisses his hands, and you're just like, oh, Shimi's made a friend. Cuthbert has a loyal friend in Shimi, right? There's a great passage in here. I just wanted to bounce back a little bit when the standoff ends. So at this point, Jonas has his his gun to Elaine's head. And Elaine is kind of like 
being reasonable and being like, hey, listen, you know, we're here on behalf of the affiliation. There's going to be repercussions if you kill us. And Jonas is just like, I don't give a solitary shit. So he kind of tips his hand here that after all this, like, oh, the affiliation, blah, 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 that we've been hearing for these past two chapters, that when it really comes down to it, Jonas ain't no loyal affiliation man. So that is done. We've we that's revealed. I mean, we know it, but now it's revealed to our our gunslingers as well. What's great is in the process of him basically confessing all of this, he feels the tip of Roland's knife in his back. And there is I'm going to read you a little bit of uh, a little passage from this because I just think it's so good. Okay. Holster the gun. The voice behind the sharp tip of metal said it was empty somehow, not just calm, but emotionless. Do it now or this goes sing in your heart. No more talk. Talking's done. Do it or die. Jonas heard two things in that voice, youth and truth. He holstered his gun. Oh, so, so good. <laughs> so good. It's also the Roland that we know, right? You know, we've, he's been boohooing in the town square about Susan. And this moment reminds you exactly of who the man that Roland is to become this quiet emotionless machine of gunslingery and so to see that roots of that in him as a kid is such a great moment and that jonas instantly recognizes it like oh there's this kid's gonna stab me if i don't put my gun away right now the game is lost for all of his castles for all of his you know being careful and thinking he's the smartest man in every single room he just got outwitted by this kid and he can't there's no there's no fighting it it's done it's just a really it's a great rolling moment that reminds you it's not gonna just be a weepy kid there is the rolling we know in here yeah it's badass (laughs) and all of them actually are like they they all stand their ground in like their own way and do you feel like did your opinions of these characters change at all in this section for you um, so, like, with uh, Elaine and Keith Burt, we don't really get, like, a super deep dive into their personality other than the snippets uh-huh. from previous sections and so on. Um, So this here, like, really defines them yes. as almost, like, crossing that threshold from boyhood to manhood yeah. when, like, A, they're willing to stand up for someone who's defenseless B, they're willing to put their life on the line, and then C, someone who has more experience and is bigger than them is made to cower in their boots against these, like, what they consider children. Mm -hmm. And so that's, like, almost the transition between probably uh, boyhood to gunslinger. Right. Oh, And maybe not full gunslinger, but at least, like... The, the beginning you're now yeah. uh, you're now walking the path of the beam to become a gunslinger yeah i mean i feel like this is where we see the more sides to them because prior to this cuthbert was just kind of silly i mean he was funny and a smart ass and so i liked him based on that alone but elaine i mean he was snoring once and then the next time he was shaking in his boots after about going into a party but here in a gunfight when his life is quite literally on the line, he's cool as a cucumber. And you, yeah, this is this was to me the moment where they stopped being just names on a page and like full characters that I really got attached to. <laughs> so then the sheriff shows up and basically uh, brings them all in. Uh, there's too many of them to fit in the regular sheriff's office. So he takes them to like a building next door um, at like a gathering hall or something like that. And, and then... Avery basically like waits for a deputy Dave to arrive, who's apparently 
a heavy drinker and like is irritated that they like woke him out of either his slumber or his drinking, you know, whatever. I think he was just and, having a good old time pounding the punch at that party. Yeah, and so like there's this whole like side bit of him and the sheriff and like making uh, this like anti hangover medication. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. That like Rhea makes or Rhea like sold them or gave to him. And like he has to go out of his way to explain that like, guess what, guys? <laughs> There's always a bargain with a witch. Like this cures your hangover, but like, man, what it does does to your stomach. You'll you'll be farting <laughs> and burping. And then like he waves his hand, and I assume that means he like let one rip and like it sort of like took the tension away from the room. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, the farts. Yeah, and so uh, everybody kind of like lightens up a little bit, but like Avery sort of puts on these like these different faces. First, he's putting on like a somber note of like we need to uh, make this town work, and uh, um, you guys are not helping anybody and you realize this isn't your best interest and then he like kind of changed tax and is like if you're not gonna behave then i don't need you around here and you all can go west in the morning for all i care Mm -hmm. um and and then like he uh when he's not quite really getting there or not getting there he basically makes a plea for them all to like sort of shake hands and apologize and that he doesn't want to see him again, and that there's no sense turning this into a thing. Yeah, and like you know that no one in there really believes that, no. and that there will probably still be animosity and or like future fights to the death. Yeah, probably, probably. But the sheriff just doesn't want to deal with it. And like on top of that, the the these guys that are the lawmen there, they already know that like this is a bluster. They're, yeah they're putting on it's not like if these guys decided to step up and come up against them that they could actually really do anything about it right and so this whole like thing is sort of a theater of law Mm -hmm. and order Mm -hmm. in order to basically uh take these guys from a fighting stance to a get out of here stance and then like hope that that doesn't come back on him right i mean it it kind of calls back to the conversation that Susan was like remembering with her father where you can do something or not do something or you could do nothing. And the third is kind of something he would consider to be a coward's way out. He basically Mm -hmm. does that. And as a result, Roland is like unsurprised that he went that route, but is also unimpressed. And he kind of thinks to himself, like it's, he sees, he actually sees uh, Avery's hand shaking when he's like taking a drink. And he's just like, you know, he knows that he's not a, he's not actually uh more powerful or above the big coffin hunters and now tonight he knows that that's true of us as well and so everybody's sort of playing a role in this section to like move on regroup and then obviously at some point most likely confront one another um yeah the other thing that happens in this section that it's really quick but i think it's interesting is that when avery is taking the medicine he talks about ria and he sort of darts some meaningful eye contact over towards Jonas and Jonas pretends not to see it but oh yeah that's true and Roland catches it and I realize this is probably the first time that Roland has even heard of Rhea the Coos right Mm -hmm. so he's not really sure who she is or why it matters just that by Jonas's decision not to act like he knows obviously that tips that hand definitely Mm -hmm. yeah yeah you're right I forgot about that yeah Uh, the other super meaningful 
point in this situation is when Jonas finally shakes Roland's hand, he looks him in the eye. And then later on, like <laughs> Keith Bird is like, that guy means to kill you. Yeah. And I mean, so that like tells you like the kind of Western look that he got. Oh, for sure. I mean, this whole section is, I, I love how deep we're leaning into the, the full spaghetti Western of it all. No, oh, yeah, definitely. So um, they, they basically all agreed to not pursue this and the big coffin hunters go their way and Roland and the gang goes the other direction. Mm-hmm. And first we get the perspective of the big coffin hunters. Uh, those guys like ride out a ways. Jonas um, is pissed. Yeah. Towards like where they were working before. And like Jonas basically tells the pape to get off his horse and take off his glasses. And, yeah. and he's like, but, but, but Jonas, I don't want to take off my glasses. Take off your glasses or they're going to be broken. <laughs> <laughs> and then just like smacks him around for a bit. And, like, while he's kind of beaten up on DePape, DePape was sort of like, how was I supposed to know? And, and Jonas thinks about Valid it for a second, question. and he's like, you know what? You're right. How were we supposed to know? We, these guys had us thinking, quite literally, that we were um, we were up against some kids who'd been sent out from their parents for, like, causing trouble. And now we find out that these these guys are... I don't want to say it. They probably not, but they almost acted like gunslingers out there. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so that like changes the whole narrative. And so Jonas, like who seems to be the sort of chess playing guy yeah. of the group, is like, okay, wait a minute. We misunderstood the nature of these boys. Yeah. And now we need to regroup and think about it. And so at first, DePape is like a little bit um, leery, but uh, Jonas basically sends him to backtrack the path that the uh, boys took into town and their travels there to kind of suss out what they were up to and any other information that he could find to satisfy Jonas's curiosity Mm -hmm. about what these kids were up to and how they got there. And that like basically points to Jonas like revamping and regrouping and coming up with like his new plan and his last sort of like ominous statement before he sends him off is basically like, I'll tell you one thing, boys. If you put a knife to my back yeah. and you don't kill me, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, no sore paws for these boys. Not anymore. Nope. <sighs> yeah. So there's a couple of little things in here. First being, I was listening to them talk to each other. This is the first time we've had Jonas and DePape speaking to each other. This was not the case with Reynolds and DePape, or Reynolds and Jonas. And so I hadn't really picked up on it until now but jonas uses relatively good grammar and you get the sense that we've talked about how he was like educated because he went through the gunslinger education process right he went through the training mm-hmm. whereas de pape he doesn't he sounds much more like someone who would be from lud or something right and so mm-hmm. i kind of am wondering now if they're not all rejected gunslingers maybe this is dumb and it's obvious and I, it just occurred to me but they're actually just young people that maybe orphans or something like that that jonas has kind of raised in the way of the gunslinger so trained in all of the things and that's why they're fast like a gunslinger and and they don't have to look when they're going to punch somebody in the face you know like all those things that would be signs that they had been through the training didn't necessarily mean that they got the training in gilead i don't know what do you think am i crazy i uh, no, i think that makes sense in fact like um when jonas is listening to him whine about how he was supposed to know like Jonas takes a moment to correct his grammar in his mind. Right. <laughs> like, 
Like a little uppity. Right. And then the fact that Jonas sort of like reserves the best tasks for himself mm -hmm. and relegates the more um, demeaning tasks to his cohorts would kind of imply that Jonas was the one who was kicked out of the program, whereas yeah. the other guys may not have ever even seen the program, right. just heard about it. And, then to pay and there was no mention of scars or anything like that for the other guys, was there? That's true. There's no limps from like Cordora's dad. The other thing we find out about in this section, there's a mention of a man named Latigo. So Jonah says that, you know, the reason I didn't just kill them right there, the reason that we walked away and we shook hands and all that stuff was because we have to play it cool because Latigo will be coming towards them soon. And so they need to keep the peace for now. It's the first mention of him. So he's got to be someone who's in on the whole plan, right? I'm just trying to think of a Latigo joke, but nothing is coming to mind. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right, last section. Okay, so then camera pans off into the horizon and pans back down to Roland and the gang. Yeah. Um, over back at the ranch where they've been put up for the evening, kind of like talking about the night. And Keith Burt starts with like a, uh, a kind of jokey question of his skull. Yeah. His skull says, I don't know, I'm tired. And, and Keith Burr says, yeah, I'm tired too. And, and this is where, like, for a moment, he says, did you see the look in Jonas's eyes? Yeah. And, like, that that man means to kill you, Roland. Right. And Mr. Shining over in the corner is like, they all plan, they plan on killing us all. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Oof. yeah. And so Roland also realizes sort of the mistake of having that particular bit of their um their nature exposed to these guys right they're not gonna be able to get the drop on them again because now their their hand has been tipped yeah and they may be able to get at the drop on them but not in the same way mm -hmm. and so now they have to be more clever and like really think about what they're doing and this kind of like basically relates to roland knowing that they're up for a fight and trouble in the near future and that this sort of thing is coming right he says that there's trouble in their road which i don't does that sound familiar to you the trouble in their road yeah well i, I mean i guess like the gang back in uh midworld is you know on a road with thinnies all over the place mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so maybe yeah so before they leave the the, the morning before roland starts telling the story the morning of they see the whatever thing glass building is in the future and if you recall roland didn't even want to look at it and yeah so eddie asked him like why he won't look at it and roland's response is um roland did take a another look at the in sorry roland did take another look at the distant glaze of light on the glass but once again he was quick a uh, little more than a peak because it's trouble roland said and it's in our road we'll get there in time no need to live no need to live in trouble till until trouble comes. So oh, okay. it's something yeah. it actually is. a uh, Again, we're talking about like parallels, right? And it could be that he's remembering this. And so it's just naturally he kind of says something similar. But I do kind of feel like this is a maybe there was a lesson learned in this book that is now something as he it's informed the way that as he moves forward when he sees stuff like that, he's like, Okay, I can't deal with that problem right now. That's a problem down the road. It's going to be coming no matter what I do. So, like, let me focus on what I have in front of me right now, which is something 
that he is not doing in this moment, right? Because here he <laughs> is, his hand has been tipped, the big coffin hunters are on the case, there's mysteries afoot, no one can be trusted, and he cannot stop thinking about Susan. I, he, he immediately falls back into thoughts of her and then goes to home and falls back on the pillow and immediately starts dreaming about her. And it's like, dude, you got bigger problems. <laughs> And so I feel like that potentially could be a sign that he's about to learn some lessons that he maybe uses moving forward. (laughs) I don't know. What do you think? I mean, uh, yeah, I think that's super apparent Uh, when like Susan becomes like a repeating record in the background of all of these way more dramatic scenes. Right, right. You're like, well, come on, man. You guys are in like a standoff where it's pretty crazy. And, uh, you still had time to like daydream about Susan while you were walking to said standoff. And like, you've just been in a life or death situation and realized that there are people out to kill you. And at the end of the night, you fall asleep dreaming of Susan. Yep. Mm. <sighs> All right, DJ, what'd you think of this chapter overall? These chapters. Uh, so overall. Th- this is a, it's a pretty action packed section. Um, I really liked it. Uh, if I didn't have Rachel here to back me up and, cover deeper thoughts on this i would have just been like wham bam yes look at that oh my gosh <laughs> you know i might have spent a little too much time on the, the two-handed uh chain smoking uh hand job hooker lady jillian like, the killian she's the queen i love her <laughs> man uh but yeah overall this is really good what about you rachel i loved these sections i loved the latter half of the last chapter where we got into all the political intrigue that was really interesting to me i love them i'm always compelled by a mystery and unlike the other books i think this is the only one so far where there's kind of a central mystery they've always been sort of a journey and there are things that we don't know and things that are a little mysterious but I don't know that we've ever been investigating anything before. And so that's really fun and fresh about this. And so I I loved all of the like side eyeing everybody was doing in that section. And then of course I love all of the action beats of this section. I know that you're more the action person, but this one I thought was chef's kiss. Um, And I think a big part of it was because it was the scene. It was really well done. I loved how it just ratcheted up, ratcheted up. I loved the perspective of coming from the, uh, the, um the co- the black coffin hunter big coffin hunters the big coffin hunters i loved all of that but i also felt like this was the like and i said this before the uh, the chapter where i got invested in these other characters and i really really love especially Cuthbert. um i loved that he was kind i loved that he was funny and i liked that they were both badasses it was just yeah overall really great chapters a little annoyed with roland overall he's kind of working my nerves but i love <laughs> roland so he gets a pass so do you think this is like sort of the mini sewed feeling that you got when you got the drawing of the three and you had each of the mini sodes yeah. of like, because uh, I feel like that's this book's mini sewed where you actually get a beginning, middle and end of a story. Yeah, maybe. And like, there's a thing that you're chasing after and you finally find it out and then you're back in the main story again. Mm. And and that's what this feels like. It's it's almost like Stephen King wants to break away from the main story every once in a while yeah. to tell you a complete story from beginning to end. That could be. And, like, he's just like, jump back this thing epicness. is so long and epic, I just need to tell a self-contained story. Yeah. I think and you're right. You're right. Like, with the entire series, you're always, like, fumbling along to get to the get to the next thread to figure out what's going yeah. on there and then, like, get to the next thread. But with these, like, minisodes – 
you kind of get an encapsulated little like like a full uh, arc. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's still in the universe. Yeah. It's just that it's like it's its own cute little thing that you get to enjoy from beginning to end without having to wait for seven or eight books. I, would, I mean, I, I know. I mean, I think he's, you know, in his 80s now. Like, we're probably not going to get a ton more Dark Tower content out of him. But I just feel like there's so many little stories. I kind of wish, even if he did novellas, if he did a collection of novellas, of like little, like you said, mini-sodes that take place in this world. It would be so awesome. Yeah, I mean, just break out like the the trip of the uh, piano player from yeah, like uh, how did Shev go from you... from Hambry to Toll? I need to know yep, exactly. what's his story. And I mean, that's probably a pretty good like short hundred page story right? that would be entertaining and weird. Yeah, yeah. Maybe as we go along, we can bookmark places where we want mini sewed. Right? We've already had the fall of Lud. I want to know that. Well, uh, now we've got Sheb's adventures in the Outer Baronies. <laughs> we just need a bunch of these little things. We'll pitch them to, to Stephen King, get them on the case. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, for those of you at home who are playing along, the next episode, we're going to be covering Wizard and Glass Part 2, Susan, Chapter 7, On the Drop. Cool. So that just leaves us with our question from the Facebook group. Let me pull that up real quick and rachel told me to like look in advance and check and then i forgot that's okay you can come up with something on the fly it's not that serious this one's pretty easy breezy so here's the question from the facebook group in this chapter there's a mention again of tapping your throat as the customary greeting for men and if you recall last episode i was like or yeah it was last episode i was like spinning out about like isn't it supposed to be touch your chest and you know is this a sign that we're like supposed to read into you know avery's character is he really not know that because he's uncultured or is it because he's playing this role i mean you know me i can full tinfoil hat at it right Mm -hmm. well in this section again they refer to tapping the throat and i'm like okay so stephen king really did just forget (laughs) i just spent all this energy on this and it's absurd so that got me thinking about what kinds of questions or clarifications that you would want if you had an opportunity to ask Stephen King for a, que- a question about the Dark Tower. It could be either uh, maybe like a non sequitur or anachronism that you want clarification on or just a general question about the books that goes unanswered over the course of the series that you would love to have answered and potentially what you would want that answer to be. So let me just pause really quickly before I go any further because I realize these are huge spoilers, okay? We only got a couple of these, but these are massive end of book series spoilers. So if you are (laughs) not, if you are reading this for the first time, do not continue. We will see you in two weeks. I look forward to you joining us on our journey in Magus, but do not, do not pass go. Go away. Bye. Bye. Love you. Thanks for listening. Okay. I think we're alone now. I think we're safe now. Okay. All right. If you're gone, okay. Okay, We are moving on. Spoiler zone. Yes. All right. So DJ, I'm going to start with you. What question would you have for Stephen King that you, if he had to answer, would you ask him? I mean, so... I, I was going to actually stay within the spoil-free zone. I just want to know what's in the box. What's in the box? Because, like, so Shardik is, like, out in his area. Oh, good question. And there's, there's a box there. And, like, I always wondered, because it's never really, like, right. 
brought about after that there's just a box there right like is that his electronic brain in there is that like computers that are running him like is that a gps thing why are the other creatures running around the box what does the box have to do with those creatures and like it's there humming but what's in the box that's a great question oh that's a good one do you have any theories of what the answers is uh well i i want to say like Maybe it's some sort of like power source or brain and power source for him or almost maybe a corrupted power source. But the thing is, it's like I was almost expecting it to be duplicated somewhere else where you would see the box again. Right. But if you think through the series, that's the only time we see the box. Really? Okay. So it's been a long time since I've gotten into these later books. Never comes up again. I can't think. Well, I can't say it never comes up again. Not that you can recall. My memory is not what it used to be. But what I can tell you is. I don't recall anything with the specific black box going on anywhere else in the books because like Blaine, Blaine has like an entire computer bank. No, no black boxes there. there. We get to like some of the future scapes and like no black boxes there. We have a house that is obviously running off of some like crazy power that is like ghost house. Where's the box? Where's the box? Good question. All right. I've become a box truther. You've done it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. Okay. What about you? I want more clarification about Randall Flagg. I want to know how he works and who all the characters, who he actually is. Because some of them are him. Some of them are not him. And Stephen King has kind of played coy about it. So I want to know who all the the Randall Flaggs are. So do you want like a seven degrees of yes. Kevin Bacon? Yes, only, <laughs> only Randall Flag edition. Exactly. I mean, that's just mm. one of my many, many questions, but it's the one that I find myself spending the most time researching. So it'd be nice if I just had a nice, clean answer. I mean, do you ever wonder where the lobstrosities came from? I, want, I mean, the other thing I want to know is who were the great old ones and what happened to them? That would be another question I would definitely want answered. Like, are they just humans who got too technologically advanced or are they are they like the engineers from Prometheus? Yeah, so uh, my thought of those guys was always that like they were the evolved humans that had like left the mechanical plane behind to live in like a higher plane and the abandonment of their structures that like originally kept the world together is what has let the world fall apart because they're no longer manning their posts Uh they're manning the universe right oh wow that's interesting no i I mean mean, maybe no you're not wrong i i mean i have to you blew my mind i have to like pull the pieces back together and process it shoot i should have brought that theory up a long time ago i've been sitting on that since (laughs) book one awesome okay so we got a couple of answers from our listeners let's quickly touch on those so the first one comes from our buddy tim and he says I've mentioned this before, but in another question, but I'd like to know if Jake Chambers and Chris Chambers from The Body Stand By Me are related. Hmm. He also has a follow-up question, and he said, what happens the next time through when he has his horn with him? Oh, that's the question. (laughs) Ten books later. Right. I remember very first marketing that we saw for the movie that shall not be named was just a meme of the Horn of Elves, and it just said one last time around. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh, that was such great marketing, right? Because people who don't know the books or the, you know, whatever, like, they're just like, huh, mysterious. What is the Matrix? Whereas, but if you're a fan and you read them, it doesn't spoil it for anybody, but you're just like, oh, my God. 
god, this has so much significance. Just and then they failed. Yeah, I remember they had that cool app that they never did anything with because I think I know and the web pages where you could like go visit yeah. it and it was like a floating rose. It was so cool, man. And then it... and I was just like, roses are tacky. Come on. Oh my god. <laughs> Here we go again. Okay, awesome. So that is a really great question, and like I said, I think the question, right? So mm-hmm. Craig also weighed in, and he said either. Just how the artist kid in the last book got to Midworld. Not sure of the answer. That could be a whole book for it in itself. Though I suspect the child snatching guy from Storm of the Century. That's an oh. interesting little twisty twist. Now, I have to be honest. It's been so long since I read the book. I'm like, who's the artist kid? <laughs> I can't wait to find out and also wonder about this. But isn't, I mean, isn't the Storm of the Century kidnapper snatcher guy, isn't he randall Fla- isn't he one of the randall flags i i think you might be correct because if that's the case then if i think that's a totally valid theory right <laughs> okay so then he also asks does roland's cycle ever end okay this is what he says i actually think the better answer is no that it's his lot to save the tower over and over again each cycle may be a little different but it's the as the last gunslinger and the last of his line, it's his destiny to protect the tower always. Though I think King is a sucker for happy endings and this wouldn't be the case. I wondered that myself. If maybe the cycles have to be perpetuated because it's... Every time he's defeating evil at the very last rung before like the cycle starts over again and it's another try. Well, I think it resets the... No matter how much breaking has been done by the breakers, the beams reset if he goes back in time, right? Yeah. So in some ways, that cycle is keeping the beams together. Hmm. So Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, th- I don't know if that's true. That's just a thought that I've had. It's not even something that I subscribe to. It's just, what if this is ultimate quest is to protect the tower and maybe the ultimate test maybe he has to continue the cycle because as long until he gives up Mm -hmm. the beams will always be repaired will always be saved because he goes back through the tower so i always thought of it more as like we have all these multiverses all over the place and that every time he goes through the tower it shucks off another multiverse into the many verses and so mm, he's like he's the, actually the origin of the multiverse yeah and like if you think about it from that perspective then like the tower is roland and roland is the tower because the tower has many layers and levels uh-huh. and each level represents a shucked off universe uh. so each time roland shucks off a universe going through the the cycle he is inevitably like putting another stone in the notch of the tower and like again keeping the tower fortified to repeat the cycle and shuck off yet another universe and all the universes decay at different rates and the decay rate would probably coincide with like what level they were shucked off of the tower at Mm, interesting so then the least corrupt are like closer to the top and the like most corrupt are the ones clearest to the bottom shit what imagine when we get to the end of these books i mean the the places we're gonna go <laughs> it's gonna be like we're gonna like turn inside out <laughs> i can't wait awesome all right thank you so much listeners as always i love to get your answers on the facebook and for those of you at home who have opinions and you want to share them come on over join the facebook group hang out with us and uh, answer our next question when i post it in a couple of weeks and if you want to drop us a line we always love to hear from you you can email us at cast of at zombiegirls.com 
And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. All right, DJ, that is it, except for what is up with you. If people need some more DJ in their life, and I recommend it, like I'm, when it comes to DJ, I'm a maximalist. How can they get more of you in their <laughs> life? <laughs> Uh, you can swing over to uh, deadlander.com and listen to the Dead Lantern podcast. Uh, we will be inviting uh, an old-time friend and longtime Splattercast participant, uh, Mr. Jeff, on for Whoa. an episode. <laughs> so look forward to some trash-talking, oh, uh, mean-spirited <laughs> slinging, and some like cut-off, angry man in your life. Uh, that's coming up on the Dead Lantern splatter Do you think he cast keeps, he stores his anger in his mustache <laughs> it's, it's possible uh, he occasionally lets like small bursts out of it in like rando emails and texts like oh, bless his heart i love jeff though <laughs> they're like perfect trolls that he's like been sitting on for a week or two and it's just like time to release you into the universe <laughs> fucking jeff <laughs> awesome and of course everybody pick up a copy a digital copy of chills down your spine now on amazon prime now what about this uh uh uh, bonus stuff that we're supposed to be doing here is that something that we're talking about or is that all under the hood drop some hints here on our on the cast of call you'll be the first to know yeah we're, we've got a little something in the in the hopper we're working on some bonus content maybe a little patreon situation dj helped me come up with the concept for how we're gonna do it and i think you guys will really enjoy it we have some fun fun content planned ahead so keep your ear holes open and we'll keep you posted on that as we get closer to that in the next month or so i think dun 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 dun, dun, dun. What about you, Rachel? Where can they find All you? All right. For, so for more of this, you can find me on the Zombie Girls podcast. We review horror films from a feminist perspective. You can find me on the More Deadly podcast with a theme song created by the one and only DJ Sharton. Uh, <laughs> where we review horror films directed by women. We also have some fun guests lined up there. None of them are Jeff. None of them have mustaches. But they're still going to be fun. <laughs> and you can find me on the Stream Queens podcast where Mars and myself have too many drinks and review horror films that are streaming on the internet. That's all of them, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's plenty. You don't need any more than that. Trust me. Cool. So, DJ, take us out. All right, folks. Thanks for listening to another exciting episode. And I want you to stay up really night or really late tonight and watch infomercials until you find something that sells, like, I don't know, maybe a shake weight. You get two of those and practice really hard and then get your pipe <laughs> skills up. And pretty soon you can be the Cambria Hambry, the handjob queen. <laughs> Good night, folks. <laughs> oh, my God. I love life tips from DJ. <laughs> You're changing lives, DJ. Changing hearts, minds, and lives. <laughs> build your muscles and build your uh, reflex. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Friendship. Your <laughs> circle of friends. <laughs> You'll be very popular. 